Hi, I'm Maeve Marsden and you're listening to Queer Stories, the podcast for the monthly LGBTQIA storytelling night I run at Giant Dwarf in Redfern, with support from the City of Sydney. This week, scientist and radio star Dr Alice Williamson. Good morning, everybody. I'm Denise, and I'd like to welcome you all to the three most important hours of your new role. This workplace health and safety induction. Now let me start with a little mantra that I like to remind myself of every morning. Safety is no accident. stare straight ahead, desperately trying to avoid eye contact with anyone who might force me to lose composure and start giggling uncontrollably. (laughs) But when I risk a swift look around, I realise that no one else is quite so entertained. How did I end up here, I think? Almost ten years after I first left home, I'm back again, living with my parents, suddenly devoid of all domestic responsibility, wearing clothes that have actually been ironed, and being dropped off and picked up from work by my dad, sometimes with a lunchbox that he's packed for me in the morning. Now let me start with a story. A story about someone who once sat in this very self-same room on this very self-same safety induction. Let's call him Trevor. One morning, it was raining stair rods, and by the time everyone had come in from took foyer with the sudden coats and the brollies, the floor was covered in water. Trevor was rushing to a meeting. He slipped on the floor, and he dislocated his knee. The ambulance came. Trev went to hospital, and Muggins here started filling in the paperwork. If I'd had a tenner for everyone who said to me, Oh, that floor's always been a death trap. (laughs) I slipped on that last February. Well, I'd have had a lot more spends for my annual trip to Tenerife, I tell you. (laughs) But back to Trevor, who remained in hospital for a few hours, got his x-ray and his plaster cast, and went home for a week or two. Three days later... Trevor died from a blood clot related to that injury. (laughs) And all because no one had flagged that floor as a slip hazard. All of those people share some responsibility in that tragedy. The standard you walk past is the standard you accept. And the standard I accept is that Nothing less than every one of you is getting home safely from work each night. And I hereby pledge, I'll have no more deaths on my watch. (laughs) Who's with me? Where the hell was I working? A friend had kindly got me a job on an industrial estate packed full of all sorts of businesses. The vast majority were desk-based. And certainly not dangerous enough to merit a three-hour health and safety warning. With with perhaps the sole exception of the company that I was working for, the one specialising in the synthesis of chemical starting materials for research and drug development teams. 
and I was quietly confident that Denise's monologue would not delve into the safe handling of chemicals. And I was right. I stifled a sigh. I was supposed to be in Australia by now, learning how to surf, lathering Vegemite on everything, <laughs> trying to understand negative gearing, <laughs> and you know, all those things you need to do to prepare for a citizen test. <laughs> Instead, I was back home in Warrington. Let me tell you a little bit about my mighty hometown. It's a town nestled between Manchester and Liverpool in the northwest of England. A town home to the wonderful Warrington Wolves Rugby League. Thank you. Lever Brothers Soap Factory. And the first IKEA in Britain. But despite all of that, it's also a town that was recently described as the least cultural place in Britain. Or as summarised by the Daily Mail in a pithy and succinct headline, Fancy a bit of culture? Definitely don't go to Warrington. <laughs> it continues. There are no listed parks, no areas of natural beauty, no battlefields or historical ships, and not even any nice old pubs. <laughs> not even any nice old pubs. Talk about adding insult to injury. But it's advisable to question anything that's published in the Daily Mail. And it's really not that bad at all. It just doesn't quite live up to the marketing campaign slogan plastered all over the deserted old high street. It's all going on in Warrington. <laughs> quite frankly, that's a bit of an overstatement. But I reckon every town should have a slogan though, right? My sister's partner, Tom, who's here, He's from Hartlepool in the northeast of England, and his is Hartlepool, a marina, and much more. <laughs> and that was my favourite for ages until I went to New Zealand, and I saw the one that looks over Featherstone Station, which says, Featherstone, if you lived here, you'd be home right now. <laughs> Anyway, the reason I'm back in Warrington is because my Australian visa hasn't come through. I thought it would arrive months ago and I've already had all three of my farewell parties. Uh, you passed your PhD viva in Cambridge, a teary and alcohol-filled dance fest in London, and a family weekend away in Glasgow where my cousin baked me a delicious but weird spiky cake. It made much more sense once she explained to me what an echidna was. Coming home was never part of the plan, and it doesn't feel like anything is going on in Warrington. Because I feel uncomfortable and out of sorts. Partly because I want to be in Sydney, partly because I feel like I've regressed back to my teenage years, and partly because I've got a secret. What could it be? <laughs> I've always been pretty good at working things out, which is kind of helpful as a scientist. Um, and I think it dates back to deciphering my parents' coded conversations as a child. Um, they'd speak to each other in broken French when they didn't want us to listen in. But the main problem was that my dad doesn't speak any French. <laughs> and so what it would turn into is this frustrated game of charades. And I was 
pretty good at working those out, so I think that's where it comes from. But a couple of years before my return to Warrington, age 25, I still hadn't managed to work out that I was a lesbian. I locked eyes with a beautiful woman in a Parisian bar one February evening, and I felt a mixture of terror and excitement. Merde. <laughs> this must be why I never wanted a boyfriend. My new lesbian hypothesis was supported by some other pieces of evidence. <laughs> An explanation for those feelings I'd had for Rachel Griffiths in Six Feet Under. The holes that were growing in the elbows of the plaid shirt that I wore at every opportunity. And, of course, my insatiable desire to push the gay agenda. Still, this new chemistry came as a shock and a distraction from another type. One that was tricky, but easier for me to understand and explain. The contents of my PhD research. For a month, maybe more afterwards, my lab notebook remained blank. A solitary date and title hinted at results, but I just stared out of the window. The day punctuated with tea breaks and the sound of children entering and leaving the neighboring primary school. The lab notebook is the equivalent of a scientist's diary, and sometimes it actually feels more personal. I tried to keep many diaries as a child, and I had no problem filling the pages because I loved writing. The problem was that I was so private that most of the entries were fiction-created, entirely to satisfy any adult who might pick it up, <laughs> rather than actually expressing any honest feeling or emotion. My PhD lab book, on the other hand, was completely honest. Some days I did a better job of filling it in than others, of course, but it charted the few highs, the many lows, and the different plateaus of my research. I poured my results or lack of results into it and had to accept that whatever it contained, my boss and colleagues would probably come to look at it and judge its contents. I didn't manage to fill up any more pages until I'd summoned up the courage to come out to my sister and a few of my close friends. And as I started feeling more comfortable in my skin, my chemistry even started to work, making the long hours and endless weekends in the lab a little bit easier. But I still wasn't feeling great. I was concentrating on finishing the PhD rather than taking care of my mental health, and I started to feel trapped in an academic bubble of competition, pressure to publish, and secrecy. And so, as a coping strategy, I started to imagine what I'd do next. I'll give up research and go traveling for a few years and become a writer. And to make a long story short, something I'm pretty terrible at doing, <laughs> I ended up with a chance to come to Sydney, Australia. Much further from home than I expected, but with a chance to do malaria research in a new type of science called open science, where all secrecy is removed and all of our lab diaries are completely open and published on the internet where anyone can read them. Now, I don't know if there's any psychoanalysts in the audience, <laughs> but I don't think you need to be or even to have read anything by Sigmund Freud to join a few of those dots. <laughs> so I had a plan, and I'm starting to feel better. I'd studied a few maps of Tassie, and... <laughs> Plotted a route up the east coast and through the top end for a six-week adventure before I start work, and I've even submitted my PhD. But the visa doesn't come, the lease on my flat has expired, and what little money I had has run out. So I move home, get a job, and have to listen to Denise. And Denise is not the only character at work. 
There's far too many for me to try to introduce you to, but I'll give you a flavour. My boss, a mank who ends every sentence the same way. Alice, if you're in the lab today sort of thing, maybe you could finish making that last precursor sort of thing and dry it out sort of thing, check the water content sort of thing and pack it off ready for shipping sort of thing. One day we're in the staff canteen small depressing room that always smells of broccoli soup <laughs> and he answers his phone and starts speaking to his speaking to his partner in Cantonese but continues to punctuate his conversation with sort of thing <laughs> it was the best thing ever <laughs> lunchtime in the canteen is the most depressing part of the day but also weirdly my favorite bit not just because of my dad's amazing butties but also because of the daily rituals of my colleagues. One has a lunchbox the size of a cake tin. It's yellow and scratched, and it looks like it hasn't been washed since 1992. Its monstrous size can only be explained by the fact that this colleague likes to fit his copy of the Daily Mail inside that for safekeeping. <laughs> he flicks off the lid, pushes his grimy lab specs over at the top of his head, and begins to read out stories of interest to everyone at the table. <laughs> and we're really lucky, because he also gives us a running commentary on his feelings about the news at the same time. <laughs> Shaking his head, with one hand, he unwraps a tinfoil treat of a corned beef sandwich and white sliced bread with congealed mustard pushed over the edges. The hand then reaches to pull the ring of a can of Coke and once free, lifts a bag of pork scratchings to his mouth, bites the corner, while still sharing breaking news on the causes and cures of cancer, and pulls them open. When the paper recital is over and his lunch finished, he reaches for his pièce de résistance. One of three packs of indigestion tablets contained within the lunchbox. I'm still not sure if they aided with the digestion of the paper as much as the processed food. <laughs> and this continues every day for weeks and then a month. And despite checking my email inbox every 30 minutes, there's still no visa. Friends are starting to stage interventions and tell me that maybe Australia isn't going to happen. And perhaps I should start looking for a flat or a more permanent job. And I'm starting to get pretty, more, pretty down. I can't face any more lunchtime daily mail, or keeping secrets from the people making my sandwiches, or delaying the freedom that I'm sure that Sydney will bring. I feel like things can't get much worse, and then one day, Denise's voice ringing in my head, I slip over and dislocate my knee. <laughs> Can you still come to work sort of thing? <laughs> my boss but I can't I get x-rays and a plaster cast and I go home to rest and then three days later my visa arrives thanks for listening for tickets to the next queer stories visit giantdwarf.com.au to check out other events I produce and perform in visit mavemarsden.com and if you'd like advance or discount tickets to these shows, look me up on crowdfunding platform Patreon. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.